Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 134, a conversation about cancer and mental health. I am Dr. Eleanor Jablinski, and I am a medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancer. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys, the experiences, the stories of those affected by cancer in any way. This podcast episode is actually the audio recording of an online lecture I did several weeks ago as part of our breast cancer survivorship series, talking all about mental health. But this information goes beyond breast cancer and can really apply to any cancer type. We know that impacts on mental health are prevalent throughout the entire cancer spectrum, but there remains a significant stigma that exists in talking about and addressing mental health. On this episode, I talk about all of it. We talk about anxiety. We talk about depression, both non-pharmacologic ways, pharmacologic ways to begin to manage anxiety and depression, how to find a therapist, social isolation, toxic positivity, survivor skills, impact on the caregiver, and much more. I hope that you find this episode helpful, and I hope that it gives you action steps that you can take starting today to begin to focus on mental health. As a reminder, this information on this podcast is not meant to serve as specific medical advice, and all specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. And with that, let's get right into it. All right, so we're going to kind of jump right into the introduction. And so what I want to talk about at this at this session is really dive into mental health. And I think we talk a lot and we hear a lot about anxiety and depression. And those are obviously really, really prevalent in breast cancer. But there's so much more um, to mental health. And so I want to really talk about some of the other issues that we don't talk about a lot and hopefully provide you with some action steps and things that you can really tangible things that you can take from this session um, and, and start putting into practice, you know, as soon as it's done. So starting with, we know, we do know that anxiety and fear and depression are very prevalent starting at any cancer diagnosis, not just breast cancer. And as the disease severity increases, as symptoms such as pain or fatigue increase, then obviously those kind of symptoms can become even more prevalent. Distress, which encompasses kind of a broad category that we'll talk about, intensifies with treatment burden. It can persist even upon treatment completion. And so I think very often the perception is, oh, you're done with treatment, you know, great, you should be happy and celebrating. And we know that that's not the case. And then, you know, the distress really can persist and some people even find more distress when they're done with treatment. Patients with cancer in general are at higher risk for the development of clinically relevant depressive symptoms. And there is a significant stigma that exists when we talk and address mental health. People don't, people don't like to talk about it. They, um, they, they feel ashamed that they're having these symptoms. And as a result, we don't talk about them. And people think, continue to think that they are alone when they are not. So the most common things that do occur are depression disorders, and that's what most people experience. Um, but there's certainly many other things that can happen that are a little less common, but happen, including adjustment disorder, somatization, or somatic symptom disorders, meaning that the anxiety and the depression and the fear that someone faces kind of presents itself as physical manifestations. Um, neurocognitive disorders, almost like a pseudo dementia of sorts. Um, demoralization, existential distress, health, anxiety, illness, denial. So all of these things can happen, and I've seen all of them happen. Um, we can also see feelings of desperation, of hopelessness, 
um, of uncertainty about the future, change in self-esteem, body image, and more. So it really kind of runs the gamut. And when do symptoms occur? So these changes in mental health are really triggered at different points. They range from the time of the initial diagnosis during treatment and after treatment. So at diagnosis, you know, thinking about, okay, I, I felt, let's say, a breast mass and I, I have to go get a workup and I have to wait for the biopsy results and wait for the results. Um, learning about if you're at risk with a genetic mutation, receiving an advanced cancer diagnosis. So all of these things are really, really terrifying can impact our mental health. Going through treatment, um, that waiting period to start treatment, symptoms, complications from treatment, hospital admission, discharge, changing treatment plans, what if the treatment's not working, living with metastatic disease. And again, you would, you can see, and I see this in practice every day, is that there's almost these like peaks of mental health changes. So, you know, you might um, feel really severe anxiety, really severe depression while you're, let's say, waiting for a biopsy result. And then you start treatment and you kind of say, okay, you know, this isn't so bad. Um, and then you're waiting for a scan or the scan shows disease progression and you get that flare again of that anxiety and of depression. And then at the end or at, at the end of active treatment, you know, entering survivorship, entering that follow-up surveillance period, fear of recurrence, which we'll talk about what actually experiencing a recurrence for some grief and loss, guilt, transitioning to end-of-life care. So all of these things, you know, can trigger those mental health changes. And when faced with a cancer diagnosis or, you know, if you're anywhere along your treatment course or after your treatment course, I put this list of symptoms here to show us what can happen. And you can see on the left, physical symptoms are really long. The list is very long. You can have anything from trouble sleeping to headaches to even muscle tightness um, and men mental symptoms, you know, anxiety, um, feeling hopeless weariness, uh, inability to concentrate, panic attacks. And I put this here not to kind of go through every little thing, but to show you that the symptoms are very broad. And I think what happens a lot is that people don't realize that their mental health is suffering because they're thinking, you know, I'm getting chemotherapy. Of course, I'm not sleeping. Of course, I'm having nausea, but it, there could be more than that to it. And risk factors that predispose to symptoms, because one of the things that comes up a lot is patients say, well, why, why do I feel so anxious compared to someone else who maybe doesn't feel so anxious? And although we shouldn't compare ourselves to others, you know, naturally we, we do and that happens. And there are certain risk factors for some people that make them more likely to experience mental health changes. And that includes, you know, if you have your own personal history of anxiety or depression or a family history. Um, history of a suicide attempt, history of substance abuse, trauma um, in any capacity, uh, communication barriers, cognitive impairments. You know, if you're having trouble understanding what's happening, that is very, very stressful. If you are unable to communicate, let's say, the language barriers, that also is very stressful. Uh, not having a strong support system facing financial difficulties, um, limited access to you know, medical care, to insurance, having younger children, AYA stands for adolescent and young adult cancer. And, and those patients have really significant you know, concerns about fertility and pregnancy and sexual health. And how are they going to parent? How are they going to have children? 
how are they going to support their family um, and, and so much more. So, you know, the, all of these things really increase our risk. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat or we'll do a Q&A at the end. How do we manage symptoms? Uh, so we manage symptoms in a number of ways, and we're going to kind of get into that. But the first thing I want to stress is that I can tell you for certain that mental health symptoms are likely underdiagnosed. We don't talk about it. Um, and then patients sometimes don't like to bring it up because, again, of the stigma. And sometimes they're in the exam room with their family members and they're, um, you know, they, they don't want to seem say what they're feeling because they don't want their family member to hear. A lot of times they sometimes come with children and they don't want their children to hear. So there's a lot of kind of situation where we don't talk about it. But the first step is symptom assessment. So we can't manage symptoms. We can't identify that someone is experiencing distress unless we specifically check for it. And this is, you know, and I think I'm guilty of this also because, again, we're, we're sometimes limited with time. You know, we say, oh, are you feeling anxious or depressed? And if someone says no, we kind of move on. And that probably is not as comprehensive as it can be. One of the things that we do use, um, most cancer centers use, especially in patients getting chemotherapy, is the NCCN distress management thermometer. And I'll show you what that looks like in a second. And there are other, are other scales that exist, so hospital anxiety and depression scale and a bunch of others. And so sometimes this can be really helpful if, you know, let's say the patient says, no, I am not feeling anxious or depressed. You know, my mental health is fine, but you're worried or you're, there's kind of some red flags or warning signs. And these scales can be really helpful in, I think, identifying what's going on. So let's look at the distress thermometer. So NCCN is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. This is where all of our guidelines come from, and they have a lot of really great resources and supportive materials. So the first thing is that we ask patients, on the left you see the thermometer, and we ask patients to um, just give us a number, zero to 10, zero being no distress and 10 being extreme distress, and how much you've been feeling in the past week. And this can change, you know, maybe this was a really hard week because you were waiting for a result and you might say, I'm an eight. And next week, maybe you're better and maybe you might be a one, but it gives the clinical staff just an idea of where you are and how we can help you. And then on the right side, you have this problem list here and it asks patients to rate if you've had any concerns about any of the items below. And so there's physical concerns, there are emotional concerns, social concerns, practical concerns, spiritual or religious concerns, and then it asks people to write in. And you might have seen this and you might have been asked to fill this out. And I, I highlighted here the emotional concerns because um, this is something that, you know, we're really talking about this today. Um, but what the clinical team will use this to really say, okay, you know, so-and-so is experiencing a lot of fear or maybe they're experiencing, you know, practical concerns with work. And then we can maybe help or at least validate the symptoms and refer patients to the appropriate, maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's a social worker, maybe it's getting them, you know, filling out their disability paperwork or, or whatever it is. What are symptoms of depression? And I want to really just highlight this for a second, because I think that very often if you ask someone if they're depressed, People take it to mean as someone who's kind of lying in bed, not really wanting to get up, 
not having interest in anything and just feeling down. And all of those are common symptoms of depression. But other things that can happen is unintentional weight loss or changes in appetite. So unintentional meaning you've lost, let's say, 10, 15 pounds and you weren't trying to, you didn't change your diet. Um, And obviously there are other reasons, um, such as an advanced cancer diagnosis for why someone has unintentional weight loss. But depression is something that we really must consider. Trouble sleeping, sleeping too much, um, increase in purposeless physical activity. So sometimes if you hear like people like tap, like almost even like with their pen, just kind of tap on the table or like do some like those kind of tick like behaviors. Sometimes those things may be a sign of depression. Slowed movements or speech, their speech just is slower. It's harder to you know, have a carry on a conversation, they may feel worthless or guilty. And so all of these are symptoms of depression. And I think it's important. And they, you know, you can have these symptoms for other reasons. But I think it's important to just recognize that, you know, everyone presents in a different way. And if we don't look for it, we're not going to find it. So now let's kind of get into symptom management. And the first thing I want to do is break it down into non-medications or non-pharmacologic complementary therapies. And I think that medications have a role and we'll talk about that. But I think that what's really important is the non-pharmacologic because these are things, you know, a lot of times people don't want to take extra medications or on a ton of medications. There's a stigma. They're worried about the side effects of the antidepressants. and so you know, really leaning into these non-pharmacologic, you know, ways can be really helpful. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. And it really breaks down into, you know, mind-body relaxation. So that's deep breathing, mindfulness-based stress reduction, meditation, journaling. So it's kind of one category. And then we have a category of support groups and therapy and counseling. And support groups can be in person. They can be in social media, they can be virtual. Um, And I think with COVID, what we've seen actually is these online communities that have developed and have been really wonderful, especially for patients that are in an area where they don't have an in-person support group. Um, Exercise can be very meaningful. Tai Chi and yoga have been shown to be great in management of anxiety and depression, limiting alcohol use, maintaining your normal routine as much as possible. You know, the we saw a lot, you know, just non-cancer, but during COVID, we saw a lot of people, you know, a lot of people experiencing anxiety and depression. And part of it was they were at home, they weren't getting up, they weren't going to the office. And all of those changes really can play a role in our mental health. And then over here we have aromatherapy, massage, Reiki, music therapy, guided imagery, hypnosis. And these can be really wonderful, um, and acupuncture down here can be really, really wonderful in managing the symptoms. And what I like about them is that it's not medication. And so it doesn't come with side effects, but it can only really come with benefit. Um, Spirituality and prayer is very helpful for some people. And medical cannabis. Uh, And the data on this is vague. Um, Some things say it helps, some things say it doesn't. So this is one where you want to talk to your doctor about. Um, Personally, I think it's a great resource for patients. Um, And I've had some patients that have found it very helpful and then other patients who have um, not found it helpful. So, you know, they've tried and then they say, oh, I didn't experience any improvement in my symptoms. So it's one of those trial and error um, things. So 
I want to highlight, this is from Cancer Care, which is a great organization. And they, on their website, have a lot of um, information on anxiety and cancer. And they have, I love this, it's a simple breathing exercise that you can try. And we'll send out the slides from this, and I'll make sure I share them. But this is something that you can do, you know, at any point in your day. You can do it at work. You can do it in your car. And, you know, it's basically sitting down and taking a few deep breaths. Um, that manifestation of calm can be very helpful. And then the other thing that I like on the bottom, and I've used this, um, is the somatic grounding technique. And it's when you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling stressed. This takes, I don't know, 15 seconds. Um, and it's name five things that you can see. So, and it can be as simple as, you know, I can see um, my water bottle, I can see my, you know, jacket, whatever. Sometimes you can do it as like you can picture yourself um, in a beach, right? And you can say, I can, you know, I can see the water, I can see the sand. So that I, I like that one better, kind of focusing yourself in a calming place. And after that, you breathe. And then you name four things you can hear. You breathe. You name three things that you can smell. You breathe, you name two things that you can taste, you breathe, and you name one thing that you can touch, and then you breathe. And again, it's such a short period of time, but it just grounds you. And not that it's going to make your anxiety melt away, but you know, it can bring it can calm you a little bit, especially in a very heightened situation. Meditation. Meditation is really powerful. Um, the problem is that it's you know, sometimes I hear I don't have time to meditate. I don't know how to meditate. I try to meditate and my brain starts wandering. And so I really like this. This was a graphic from insider.com. But they had a great article about meditation tips for beginners. And these were the six things that they said. Um, and they just said, you know what, don't try to calm your mind. If you're meditating and you're now thinking about the laundry and work and this, it's okay. Just recognizing it and return to feeling I can sense my breath, you know, I'm deep breathing and just going to keep returning to that. They talk about how to position your arms and your legs. Um, they talk about closing your eyes or opening them depending on where, you know, how you want to feel. And one of the things that they say is that you don't have to meditate for an hour. Um, you can meditate for five minutes a day, you can meditate for a minute a day, but starting somewhere can be really helpful in building a meditation practice. And these are all things that we can do that complement management of mental health. And so some great meditation apps to try. Um, there's Headspace, which is really kind of Headspace and Calm are kind of the top in the field. Um, there's Healthy Minds, Peloton for those who are Peloton fans have has some great meditation classes, Insight Timer, Sleep Habit, um, I personally tried Headspace, Calm, and Peloton, and I, I like them all. I used Calm a lot during the pandemic. Um, they actually have great ones for kids, so sometimes I'll do them with my kids, as, you know, before bedtime. And I think just that that focus of like calming your mind and calming your body and getting ready for the night can be helpful. Along with meditation is journaling, and I recommend this a lot for patients because sometimes what happens is we get overwhelmed or anxious because everything is in our brain and we have a million thoughts going and 
just putting them on paper and writing them down and getting them out of your brain can be very helpful. So I kind of think of this as like a brain dump, you know, even if let's say you have your, your you feel like your to-do list is a mile long, write it, write it on paper and you realize, okay, maybe it's not that bad or I can strategize when I'm going to do it. So journaling can help you process your thoughts and emotions. Very importantly, it can help with memory and it can help with chemo brain, which is something that a lot of people experience. It can help with relationships. And it's important to just, you know, prioritize it like you do other things in your day. Set aside a few minutes, you know, daily or three times a week, whatever is going to be right for you to journal and to be consistent. And there's no right or wrong way to journal. Um, You know, it can be you don't need to get a fancy notebook. It it doesn't need to be this whole big thing. It can be I'm going to take a, you know, 99 cent notebook I bought at CVS. And I'm going to write down my thoughts. Some people are able to write and other people need prompts. And so these are three prompts that I like um, for anyone to get started. So right now I'm feeling, and this just says, no, because when you write down, I am feeling scared, then you can write about why you're feeling scared. Another one that I like is the thing I cannot talk or write about, um, because that really puts out there that what you're what you're experiencing and maybe with something that feels blocked to you. And lastly, I am grateful for, uh, because I think having a gratitude practice, you know, even if when things are really hard, even if you say everything's awful right now, but I'm grateful for, and it can be something little. I think it just, again, it's, it's very grounding. And I just want to highlight here, wildfire magazine. Some of you may be familiar with them. Um, It's a magazine for really young adults or young patient, young people with breast cancer. Um, But they do some incredible things with writing and journaling. And on their website, it's free. They have these writing prompts um, that, again, just kind of start, have you start the conversation. So I would definitely check out Wildfire. It started, um, you know, it's all run by breast cancer survivors and thrivers. Um, and it's just, I, I think, a great resource, especially if you want to write and you're not sure where to begin. I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness-based stress reduction because there is a lot of research that is done on this. So when you search, okay, what's been done in the fields of mental health and breast cancer, MSBR and studies with MSBR come up a lot. And so this is an eight-week program. It aims to reduce stress by developing mindfulness. And so that one kind of practices this moment-by-moment awareness. It has been shown to probably improve your short-term quality of life. It has been shown to probably reduce anxiety and depression and improve short-term quality of sleep and fatigue. Some studies have shown that it doesn't kind of help in the long run, and and that's okay because sometimes what you need is help in the short run. Um, It was developed in the 1970s. It's not based on any religious or ideologic factors, but it is associated with the Buddhist origins of mindfulness. So what exactly is it? It's a group program. Um, There are eight weekly sessions of two-hour classes. And then also there's a one day, six hour retreat of mindful exercises. So it's it's a commitment. It's a lot. Um, and then they ask people to do a daily home assignment for about 45 minutes. Um, and again, so it's it's a big deal. And the reason that I 
highlight this is to kind of show you what some of the research is that's being done in this space. Um, and obviously, that's not something that everyone is going to sign up for. Um, but maybe you'll see something around and, you know, you'll think of this. Or maybe, you know, you'll meditate for five minutes a day, but you'll practice mindfulness. And the three main exercises to this are a body scan, which is that body, like mindful body perception. And it goes back to that grounding exercise of, you know, five things that I can see and four things that I can hear. And gentle yoga exercises. And we know exercises great for mental health and traditional sitting meditations. And then they also have a bunch of informal exercises, kind of like that focus on, on daily mindfulness that you can do. Now let's talk about therapy. And honestly, I think that everyone uh, could benefit from seeing a therapist, especially people who are living with cancer or have been diagnosed with cancer. The problem is it's really expensive. Uh, it's often not covered by insurance. It's often um, hard to find someone local or someone that you connect with. And so, you know, how to, how to start. So I think the first step is to find a therapist. And I would either ask your friends or your family who they, if they have someone that they trust, that they like, that they recommend. Understanding, though, that, you know, your, let's say your best friend goes to the therapist, that may not be the person that's right for you because you may have different needs or a different personality. Um, but it can be a good place to start. You can ask your healthcare team if they have someone that they trust or they recommend. Um, and then the American Psychological Association or findapsychologist.org has great lists based on location. And then you can ask, you know, is a therapist licensed? Um, you know, how much is it going to cost? Is my insurance covered? So these are all things that I think are really important to ask up front so that you are prepared. You're not hit with a big bill that you weren't expecting. Um, I think asking if the therapist has experience treating patients with cancer is really important. Um, just like you wouldn't go to an oncologist that doesn't special, you know, that doesn't have expertise in your cancer type. Same thing with a therapist. Um, and choosing a therapist, you know, is, is personal and it can take time. And so if you find, let's say you see a therapist and you do not click with that person, it doesn't mean that therapy didn't work for you. It may just mean that that therapist was not the right person. And I want to highlight cancercare.org. Um, it's a great website. They have a lot of, um, they, they service like everyone. They do counseling, resource navigation, support groups, financial assistance. Um, they have a women's cancer program that provides specialized services and resources. Um, and if you're in New York or New Jersey, they also provide free individual and support group counseling. And so this is a great place to start. Um, they provide emotional support. They may assist you in practical assistance. Um, and so you have to be a resident right now of New York or New Jersey. And it could be for caregivers. And it's free. Um, and I think right now they provide, I think, up to 10 sessions. Um, and this is a really great place to start because if you know, again, therapy is expensive or you're having trouble finding one or you're not sure if it's right for you, kind of starting here with licensed social workers that are going to commit with you um, can be really, really, you know, powerful. And then let's talk about medications. Um, and so I'm not going to go into all of the medications that are out there because that's a whole other talk, but 
I will say that cancer survivors are more likely to report taking medication for anxiety, for depression, or both. And that is about an estimated of 2.5 million cancer survivors that take medication for anxiety and or depression. So it's a lot, um, but it's important. And what are factors for higher use of medication? So that includes people that are less than 65 years old, females, non-Hispanic whites, uh, having public insurance, if you have a usual source of medical care, and multiple chronic health conditions. And then factors that are linked with higher use of medications for depression are pretty much the same, um, except insurance doesn't play a role here. And if people who are widowed or divorced or separated do tend to have a higher use of medications for depression. And so what I just want to highlight when we talk about medications is, number one, let's break that stigma of I'm not taking medications to support my mental health. And I, I talk about this a lot with my patients is that people will take medication for nausea for you know constipation and our brain our mental health which arguably the most important part of our body we're like oh it's fine I don't want to take anything so it's not going to be right for everyone but it, it can be right for for many people there are different options and I would talk to your doctor about which class of medications may be right for you um, some medications can help with other symptoms like hot flashes for example we do a lot of Lexapro or Effexor for our breast cancer patients on endocrine therapy. Just like a therapist, some people have to go through different medications to figure out what is going to make them feel good and feel better. It takes time to see a response. You know, most medications take about four to six weeks. So don't get discouraged if, you know, it's been a week and you're not feeling better. And one of the things that I want to highlight, because I see this come up, is people taking, you know, long-term use of benzodiazepines, such as Xanax or Ativan. And, you know, it's okay to take it if you need to, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. But what, what I see sometimes is people who are not taking an antidepressant and using those medications to manage, you know, all of their mental health concerns. And long-term use of these medications can increase cognitive dysfunction over time. So it's really important that we're kind of reassessing, you know, should I be on this, med continue on this medication? Is it right for me, et cetera? And a key point is what you cannot take on tamoxifen, because this comes up a lot, is you cannot take paroxetine, which is Paxil. You cannot take fluoxetine, which is Prozac. You cannot take bupropion, which is Wobutrin. You can, however, take Lexapro and Zoloft and Effexor. So um, those are old time data that like we couldn't take anything and that that's all been debunked. But these three are still very much a no. And the second part of the talk, I really want to switch gears to um, coping, you know, things like coping strategies and survivor guilt and toxic positivity, um, because I think that those are important. And so coping strategies are thoughts and behaviors that we use to manage stressful situations. And this is important because I think recognizing how you cope with hard things helps you figure out how to attack harder situations. So one strategy is kind of positive reframing or reappraisal. You know, I am grateful that I do not need to have chemotherapy. So really viewing everything in a positive light. And I would put that, you know, kind of that fighter mentality into this, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm ready to go. Um, you know, really just thinking of everything in a positive way. We have another coping strategy is seeking social support. 
support groups and support groups can be really wonderful. Um, avoidance and distraction. So this is, you know, thinking about anything else except your diagnosis. Um, I'm going to clean my entire house. I'm going to reorganize things. I'm not, I'm not thinking about it. Emotional coping strategies and emotional expression. So the, this is the therapy and journaling and talking about it. And then finally, religious and spirituality. And there are other coping strategies, but this is one kind of classification. And I think that this is important because if you are the type of person that is in the avoidance strategy, if someone tries to tell you, you should really journal about it, well, that, that may not work, right? Whereas, um, let's say, you know, you are kind of a social support. I want to talk about it. I want to write about it. And, you know, your family just is really focus on positive reframing, again, there's going to be kind of a disconnect. So I think recognizing where you fall into um, can be very helpful in how you interact with your healthcare team, with your family, with your support group, and all of that. Fear of cancer recurrence. Uh, and I've talked about this a lot. And, you know, many, many people who live with or beyond cancer experience a fear of cancer recurrence or progression. Um, and this is normal. I, and I it, it's it's just part it's part of the cancer experience. Um, but what it does is that it can result in an impaired quality of life, emotional and physical distress, um, behaviors such as hypervigilance, hypersensitivity um, to bodily symptoms, to physical symptoms such as fatigue. And we you know we see this right. Um, I see this a lot in patients who I you know we know they're nervous and we're nervous. You know everyone's nervous that the cancer might come back. And let's say someone gets a headache and we can convince ourselves that that headache is more than it really is. Um, with that said, any new symptoms should always be evaluated. Uh, and it is one of the most common unmet needs that is reported by patients who are diagnosed with cancer. And this is a nice uh, algorithm. It was published last year and it kind of talks about what factors are associated with the fear of cancer recurrence, meaning who is more likely to experience this? And the top three are there's strong evidence for this. So younger age, female gender, and emotional symptoms at baseline. And so that allows us, again, to predict who is going to be more likely to be nervous um, or struggle with this fear of cancer recurrence. And, and what, we, what this helps us with is validating um, and screening for it. Um, and so what are some factors that contribute um, anxiety, right? Scans to screen for anything, you know, diagnosis, recurrence, staging, treatment anniversaries really bring up a lot of these, um, that fear and seeing others develop cancer or experience progression. That is a big trigger, understandably so. Um, but I think recognizing that it's happening is important. Um, in studies, more than half of cancer survivors experience this. Um, there are different screening tools that exist, and there are several ongoing studies that are looking at interventions that are based on cognitive behavioral therapy. So recognizing FCR, but then figuring out how do we how do we what do we do about it is important. And as a healthcare provider, what we can do is normalize it. You know, telling patients this is normal. Um, you're not alone. You shouldn't feel bad that you're feeling this way. Making sure we are screening patients, providing materials, and referring them for services. 
And I'm not going to go through this in detail, but there are a number of screening tools that are available. And this is one of them. And it really asks very simple questions. I am worried about a recurrence. I'm afraid of a recurrence. I believe it is normal to be worried or anxious about this. When I think about the possibility of recurrence, this triggers other unpleasant thoughts or images and, and so forth. And it goes through that. And again, that really helps us figure out where you are and you know what we need to be doing about it. And along with that comes survivor's guilt. And so many patients living with and beyond cancer experience guilt. Um, it's very common. It's often under-recognized and it can have lasting effects. Um, and it presents differently in each person. These are feelings of blame, of regret. And, you know, it's that feeling that you survived, that you didn't need chemotherapy, that you are free of recurrence while others have not. And it can present itself as, it's not just, oh, I feel guilty, but people can have all of these symptoms, lack of motivation, feeling overwhelmed, angry, fearful, depressed. And so, again, you wouldn't necessarily attribute that to survivor guilt unless you really start to tease it out. And these are some examples. If you have found yourself maybe not just thinking it, but kind of focused on this or fixated on this, why am I getting more time? But, you know, my loved one can't. I feel guilty celebrating ending chemo soon when my stage four friends will not get to. Why me? Um, you know, I see this a lot when people are diagnosed at the same time and they're friends and one person develops a recurrence and someone doesn't. Some people say I have guilt talking to other survivors who went through chemotherapy when I did not. So these are just some examples of things that happen. And how can you cope with guilt? And I think just like everything we've talked about today, sharing your thoughts, therapy can be helpful. Open up about what you're feeling and understand that your feelings will come and go. And you can feel grateful that, you know, that you didn't need, let's say, to have chemotherapy, but you can also feel guilty at the same time. So it's that duality of emotions, the joy and the grief, the gratitude and the anger. Um, and I, one of the things that I really want to stress is that just because maybe you didn't need chemotherapy or you didn't lose your hair, you know, don't negate what you went through because someone else is going through more. And I see this a lot in patients saying, I feel I shouldn't complain. I am lucky. And I think you can be both, you can feel lucky and grateful that you didn't need, let's say, chemotherapy, but you can also feel angry and sad and upset that you were diagnosed with cancer and had to have surgery and have to be on medication. So, you know, you, you can have both of those emotions and understand that Pretty much everyone experiences this to some degree. And lastly, I just want to highlight toxic positivity because I think sometimes this comes up a lot. And when people express concerns of stress, of fear, of anxiety, of depression, people tell them, oh, you're fine. You're going to be great. What are you worried about? Um, and that's that toxic positivity. Now, it can be self-imposed where you tell yourself, stop complaining. I'm lucky. I should feel grateful. Or it could be caused by external pressures. It leaves very little room for normal, natural thoughts and feelings that we experience when faced with a life-threatening illness. It does not allow for human emotion. Um, and it can lead to things like isolation and higher levels of distress and development of PTSD and other things. 
It can negate and invalidate what others are feeling if someone does it to you, and it can feed fear further. So some examples are, oh, you got the good cancer. What are you worried about? You'll be fine. You'll beat it. You're a fighter. And I think we've all heard these. Um, and I think, you know, the people that are seeing them really are, they, they try to mean well. They're in that positive framing coping mechanism, um, but it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work and it doesn't come across the right way. And so, you know, it's not helpful. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I recommend, if someone has said this to you and what are you worried about? You'll be fine. I think you can say, well, I'm actually worried about, you know, some of these things. How is how is my diagnosis going to affect my marriage or how will I be able to pay my bills? And I think educating others on what you're worried about is 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 really important. And the impact on the caregiver is, you know, that supportive care and mental health needs of caregivers are often not addressed and taken into consideration. And so patients with breast cancer often report, you know, report that they don't talk about their feelings with their family. And so now you create this weird setup where we don't know what the caregiver is feeling. The patient doesn't want to share because they don't want to be a burden. And, and it just all of this insufficient communication can lead to what's called a misperception of burden that affects the couple's relationship and further coping efforts. About 40% of caregivers experience anxiety and or depression, and the patient and the caregiver both affect each other's level of emotional well-being. And caregiver depression depends on a lot of things. And for them, for caregivers, their mental health depends on also things like sleep, uh, declines in their own health, perceived burdens of caregiving, changes in their roles, responsibilities and leisure activities, lifestyle interferences, and social isolation. And so I think really, really important is making you as the patient, sometimes it's it's too much for you, like, you know, now, like it's a lot to worry about yourself and your caregiver and your family. And so it's okay um, and it's really important, I think, for caregivers to have their own support system kind of looking outward. Um, and that may mean, you know, for them having their own social network, seeking therapy and things like that. And we can support caregivers. Again, just things like I said, assessing for caregiver burden. Um, it's important for clinicians to be prepared to work with caregivers. And we'll send this out, but there's a lot of really great resources specifically for caregivers. And self-care and health practices are just as important. Um, and this is a nice little algorithm for caregivers about whether they need support. Um, and I think it works for patients also, but I think this is something that is a quick little guide that we can say, hey, do you check any of these boxes? And you know, maybe, maybe it might be good for you to talk with a doctor or a counselor. Um, and then this I really like. It's also from cancer.net, which again, is another great site with lots of resources, but it's a caregiving action plan. Um, and, and here's how I think this can be used. Um, and I like the one kind of on the, on the left here. So all of these activities, very often these activities are done by the patient. Um, and so then you can kind of figure out, okay, you know, who's, how do we delegate them? And again, it's that writing it out, it's getting it out of your brain and making an action plan that allows you to divide it. Um, and if you have people who want to help, let's say people want to um, help with meals, okay, great, you know, or someone wants to start a meal 
train for you that can go here. So this is a really great tool um, that I think, you know, everyone can use to help them um, kind of navigate life a little bit better during a hard time. And lastly, um, and then we'll do our Q&A, is social isolation. And I talked a little bit this, about this on uh, social media yesterday. And the social isolation is really defined as minimal contact with other people and limited involvement in community affairs. Um, it can increase cancer costs. It is very often seen by cancer patients and to a much greater extent with the COVID pandemic because people were afraid to go out died naturally, right? And so they didn't want to risk getting COVID on chemo. So they they isolated even when the world opened up. Um, it is in breast cancer linked to an increased risk of tumor recurrence and mortality. Um, and it can affect your immune system and your nervous system. So it's an important point. And these are four questions that we can test for. Um, quick, quick screeners, I feel left out. I feel that people barely know me. I feel isolated from others. I feel that people are around me. And not with me. And if you feel any of these things, you know, that might be again a little kind of voice saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling isolated. And what can you do about it? So, same thing as we've been talking about don't hide your feelings, join a support group, get help, participate in activities that bring you joy, anxiety, depression screening, all of that, but speak up. Um, don't be alone. And so in conclusion, uh, mental health impacts are very prevalent in breast cancer. Speak up. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I hope that you found it helpful and, you know, can take something from it start that you can put into action starting today to focus on mental health. If you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I am always grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast as that helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. You can find me on all social media platforms at Dr. Toplinski. Reach out, let me know what you thought about this episode, what questions you have, and what steps you're going to take starting today to take care of your mental health. For additional bonus podcast episodes, additional content, I urge you to check out the community over on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Dr. Toplinski. It's a much smaller group, much more intimate setting, and a lot of information over there as well. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you soon. Thank you.